1: Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Today is the 100th anniversary of the internment, the burial of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey. It was the first time, well it was joint first, the French were conducting a similar service, so it's the first time that a common soldier, an unidentified casualty of war, was brought back and entombed in the heart of an imperial capital, with all the pomp and splendour of an empire at its zenith. The king led the morning. Field marshals and admirals of the fleet were the pallbearers. A hundred Victoria Cross winners formed a guard of honour as the great and good looked on. Over the last hundred years as Britain's empire, over the last hundred years as the United Kingdom was fractured, Britain's empire declined, Britain's political settlement, our heritage, our history, our royal family, our constitution has been much fought over. But the unknown warrior seems to remain above all that. It is uncontested and has remained so ever since that day, 100 years ago. Joining me on the podcast now, on this Armistice Day special, is Juliet Nicholson. She is a wonderful writer, she's been on the podcast before, she's written about her own illustrious literary family, but she's also written a book on living in the shadow of the Great War and the casualties and the impact that loss caused on families back home. She joins me now to talk about those remarkable events 100 years ago, the backstory of The Unknown Warrior. All of our content on History Hit TV to do with the First World War is free at the moment. That means you can watch our new documentary on the Unknown Warrior when I go and visit the exhibition at the National Arm Museum. You can watch that entirely for free. You can also watch our documentary on John Watts. He visits the plane in which his father was killed 80 years ago. All that content is free. No emails, no logins, no codes, nothing. Please go to historyhit.tv and enjoy all that. In the meantime, there everyone, here is our Armistice Day special featuring... Juliet Nicholson on The Unknown Warrior. Juliet, good to see you again.
0: Lovely to be here, Dan. Really lovely to see you too.
1: Well, it's good to have you back this time on the podcast to talk about The Unknown Warrior, which I always think is such an important part of our national story. This was a revolutionary moment in some ways, wasn't it?
0: The burial of the unknown soldier was unprecedented, revolutionary in that there had been no burials during the First World War because none of the bodies were repatriated the process of repatriation is such a scale of death, was considered by the government too daunting. So the decision was made very early on in the war, that irrespective of your status as a soldier, as a sailor, and later as an airman, if you died, you would be buried where you fell. So this left the country. With an inability to hold a funeral, to have a grave, to have a place to go to mourn. This, as everybody knows, is an enormously disturbing way for somebody who wishes to commemorate somebody they loved who died. So there were, you know, families of three quarters of a million people unable to mourn their loved ones and there was a void in the country of despair about this, recognised by the government who, the year before the unknown warrior was buried, had decided that a two-minute silence would be a way of bringing the focus onto this scale of death. And it worked. It was an extraordinarily clever and simple idea to have two minutes at 11 o'clock at the moment that the guns had fallen silent in 1918 to have every year two minutes as Big Ben strikes 11 o'clock of national silence and reflection. But the trouble with that was that it lacked humanity and it was the human aspect of death that people were missing so much, the actual visualisation of a coffin, of a grave. And so this brilliant idea by a vicar, a padre, a British vicar who had served at the Western Front and noticed that when a soldier died and his identifying marks had been blown away or disappeared, that a simple cross would be put up by his colleagues and it would just say an unknown soldier and this tribute to somebody even someone without a name struck this vicar David Railton as something significant helpful in the mourning process and a way in which to dignify death so he after the war in 1920 two years after the armistice he suggested to the Dean of Westminster that a body, one body, should be brought back to Britain to be the symbolic body of all of those who had died. And his idea was put to the king, George V, who was originally quite reluctant to go along with this, being a sort of cautious man, thought this might be a bit mawkish. That this might provoke some sort of wild hysteria around the country but gradually the idea and his advisors and the government persuaded the king that it would be a wonderful thing to do and so four bodies were disinterred from four different battlegrounds in Europe and the head of the army was asked to pick one of these four bodies none of which had any identifying marks on them no one had any idea who any of them were but there were four chosen just to make sure
1: that this was a random choice I'm sure the king did think it was mawkish but was there something dangerous almost about it you know you've got David Lloyd George this common born prime minister now you've got common soldiers being elevated almost to the rank of kings is it there's something a little bit revolutionary about this isn't there?
0: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it was a very off-field idea. And of course, at the time, the class system was utterly rigid in Britain, and officers tended to be public school boys almost exclusively, who also, if they had died, had not been repatriated. There had been no discrimination between rank. And so already there was some sense of equanimity and of class barrier in that way, having been abandoned, at least for the duration of the war. And it was extremely important. David Railton felt that this soldier, he may have been an officer, he may have been a public school boy, but he may not. And it was very likely that he was not. And therefore, the population could invest this unknown soldier with the identity of their son, their husband, their father, their fiancé. It was obviously a man, but that was the, the scale of the war at the time. It was a male scale of death. And so this ability for him to be any man, anyone, was of course the right thing to do. and the king yes of course the mawkishness but you're right also do we really want an anybody because the the soldier was to be buried in Westminster Abbey among kings and queens he was to be given the most prestigious burial ground in the country and that was yeah pretty revolutionary and absolutely brilliant
1: Tell me about the way in which the body was brought back, because there was just symbolism at every single turn of this story.
0: Yes, the body was invested with the highest honours from the very moment in which the head of the army, General Wyatt, chose that particular body. A coffin had been sent, made from Britain, had been sent over by the royal undertakers, which was made of oak from Hampton Court a sword that belonged to George V accompanied the empty coffin when it arrived in this little village of saint paul And immediately a guard of honour was assembled around the coffin as the body was placed inside it, wrapped in sacking. The coffin began this ceremonial and hugely grand, as if it was indeed a royal person, back to England across France on a boat across the channel already sort of decked in the most beautiful flowers where at Dover a train was waiting to carry the coffin into London and the carriage of the train had had its roof painted white so that as the train made its way from Dover up to Victoria Station in London the light of the moon shone onto the carriage roof and these hundreds and hundreds of bystanders standing in the railway cuttings as the train went past, knew that inside this particular carriage with its white gleaming roof lit by the light of the moon contained the body of this young lad who may well have been a relation of their own. And the carriage was also lined with wonderful smelling herbs with rosemary for remembrance and with bay leaves. And when it arrived in Victoria Station, again, a ceremonial guard greeted it and the coffin lay in state overnight on the night of the 10th of November, 1920, on platform eight of Victoria Station. Whenever I go there, I go to think Of that coffin lying there with that young man invested with the significance of a king or a queen maybe I could say on the morning of the 11th of November 1920 the coffin began its journey towards the cenotaph and the cenotaph was going to be on the monument which was to commemorate, as it said on the cenotaph, the glorious dead, a monument built as a temporary structure the year before, designed by Edwin Lutyens as a prop in a way for a march past to commemorate the end of the First World War, had been such a hit, such a place of focus for grief, that it was decided that by 1920, the cenotaph would be turned into a stone permanent structure, was also unveiled on the morning of 1920 November the 11th. And so the procession with the unknown soldier made its way through the streets of London that day. And the crowds had come out en masse, because of course, don't forget, there was not even radio, let alone television in 1920. So if you wanted to see something, to experience at that moment, something that really mattered to you, you needed to leave your home and come there. And so the crowds were thick, 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 20 deep from Victoria Station all the way through to Whitehall. People were wearing their hats as they did. People were silent. People were holding little bunches of flowers, some brought from their own gardens, gathered together for the first funeral that many of them could remember, and certainly the first funeral since the ending of the First World War. And as the carriage bearing the coffin came nearer, it was this humanity that struck every single person in the crowd because on top of the coffin first of all was the Union flag one that had been used by David Railton the vicar whose idea this had been when he was on the battlefield and the flag was still covered in mud and bloodstained and on top of that was not only the king's sword, but there was also the soldier's webbing belt and his helmet, his faintly dented helmet. And this detail, these two tiny daily sort of quotidian symbols of the reality of the man, anybody who had had a soldier in their life would have recognised that wedding belt and that that helmet. And it was the poignancy of his own private possessions that prompted the sobs that were rippling through the crowd as they watched the carriage pass by. and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected, digital picture frames that allow you to share and display I'm also so struck by the fact they gathered together these old war horses, the senior commanders of the British Imperial War effort, by the way, many of whom absolutely hated each other, but for this key moment.
0: Yes, I mean, it was. It was a crowd mixed up of veteran soldiers, of many, many, many civilians, and of course of women and children, children who... Missed their father, maybe children who had barely even known their father, or maybe their grandfather. And so it was a completely sort of cosmopolitan crowd of thousands and thousands of people for whom this moment was for many, I think, the most significant of their lives. And yet the chief mourner was the king, who was himself humbled by the size of the crowd and by the significance that was given to this civilian soldier, this unknown soldier who may not have been born, almost certainly not born of royal blood. So the contrast between the grandest figurehead, the king himself, and people who were from humbler backgrounds, standing together in joint commemoration and remembrance and praise for all of those who had died. And it was a beautiful day that day. The sun was shining and it was said, the Times wrote that day, that there was a tenderness in the breeze. It was this absolutely, let alone a kind of riot or a sort of hysterical, mawkish, crying. There was this quiet, absolutely beautiful November day in which uh, people gave respect to another fellow human being who had given his life for them.
1: So Juliet, we get the King Emperor, George V, members of the royal family, senior commanders of the British Empire. They accompany, there is a cortege which goes round Hyde Park corner, Whitehall, and eventually gets to, to Westminster Abbey. What happens there?
0: Well, another sort of pretty revolutionary decision had been made in that the grave, the final resting place for the unknown warrior was to be right in the entrance to the Abbey. And so the stone had been removed and a deep grave had been dug and filled with mud from Flanders. Mud in which the warrior had himself fallen. And at that service, that final burial service, a sort of very moving decision had been made to invite women for it to become a focus for women. So while the king indeed was there along with Queen Mary, who was very distressed by the whole experience, visibly so, very uncharacteristically moved, tearful. Along with them, and the other dignitaries and military high-ups, were a thousand women who were widows and mothers. And so the emphasis was, for the mourning of that final moment, was on the women, on the people who had carried their bereavement so nobly and with such difficulty. And as the coffin was lowered into the grave right at the entrance of Westminster Abbey, mud from the battlefields, which had been brought specially over, scattered the top of the coffin. The coffin was remained without this marble a sort of lid on it, for the rest of the day and into the following day so that the crowds who were so enormous outside the abbey could file past to pay their final respects before the coffin was closed. And this significance of putting the grave at the entrance to the abbey prevails today, the significance, because Whenever a king or queen comes to be married, to be buried, to be crowned, the monarch is required to sidestep the grave. You need to walk round it before you resume your steps up the aisle of the abbey. It's always banked by poppies whatever day of the year, and sometimes, occasionally, A glorious arrangement of spring flowers can be put around it. But I notice that the Queen went last week to pay her respects on her own. And the photograph of her on her own in the Abbey with just one member of the Abbey staff and and one military aide, of her standing there, this small figure in black, paying her respects to this unknown warrior is absolutely heartbreakingly moving i think so that 100 years later our own monarch is still paying her respects almost to somebody who is or feels still 100 years later the symbol of why we have our democracy why we have our freedoms
1: What's your latest book called, Juliet?
0: I've written this time nearly 50 years after we are talking about today. It's the story of a very cold winter in 1962 to three when the snow fell from Boxing Day and did not stop for three months and we were paralysed into a sort of lockdown. And when we emerged from that lockdown, everything was so much better.
1: Well, that sounds very topical. I'm looking forward to having you back on the podcast to talk about that. Thank, Thank
0: you much. so much, Dan. It's been an absolute
1: pleasure. hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense. But if you could just do me a favourites for free, go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough weather, the law of the jungle out there, and I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you.